the heart cry of the people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the coming of Jesus was come, come Messiah.
Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, you're the rescue for sinners, the from heaven Jesus Messiah Lord of all Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's dive into the scriptures Luke chapter 1 Luke chapter 1 Today we begin our Advent sermon series, and it is entitled The Hope of Christmas. This morning we are going to begin with the story of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and his wife, looking at Elizabeth. And uh, we're going to look closely at especially Zechariah's own wrestling with hope, as many of us are wrestling with that in 2020. Uh, We have many reasons to cling to hope in times of distress, and in such times, it can also be very easy to cling to false hope, false messiahs, false saviors. Um, The first advent of Christ, it reminds us where our hope must lie, and in today's sermon, we're going to look at the very first, I, I think we can call it the very first Christmas story. That is Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the birth of their son, John the Baptist. But before we dive in, we kind of have to kind of construct the historical circumstances around this story if we really are to understand its fullness and its full impact. So the year is around, of course it's debatable, three or so BC. It's been 400 years since anyone has heard anything from God. He was far from silent. Sometimes this period of time between the Testaments, the Old and New Testaments, is called the silence um, period. Uh, He was far from silent. He was working in some of the most dramatic manners you could fathom concerning world empires, world leaders, the shifting of world powers. But no one in Israel had heard or seen him or an angel in 400 years. Now, Rome ruled Israel. Herod's huge and wondrous temple stood in Jerusalem, and the Jews were in peace beneath the Romans, albeit a very strained peace, one that was almost always being challenged by radical groups in Israel trying to overthrow the Romans. Now, in these days, there were estimated between 10 to 20,000 Levitical priests in Israel who not only served in the temple from time to time, but served almost as local teachers and expounders of the law wherever they lived. Having seen or heard nothing in centuries from God, no prophet having arisen, no angelic visitation or inspired scripture written, things kind of seemed quiet, but hope was high that all of God's prophecies would one day come true, especially in their time of distress. It is right here in this time in history that our story picks up with one of the many of the thousands of priests and his family, Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
Our story begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So here we are introduced to a man and his wife, who were both very zealous for God. They were a priestly lineage, but their one major issue was this, no children. Now, to understand the crisis this would have been in this time and day, we must take a minute to explain the reality of a couple advancing to the latter years of their life with no children in these early times. So to begin with, you worked until you just physically gave out, and then you looked to your children for help. There was no government assistance or Medicare or anything to help, right? Uh, if, if you were old and you simply could no longer work, you looked to your children to help provide for you. But what happened if you had no child? Your future was cloudy, it was gray, and it was uncertain, especially for this priestly family who lived off the meager tithes and offerings of the Israelites, far from a robust salary, if you will. And there's also the inability for your own family to have continued. Fathers passing down their father's name to the next child and so forth. This was an honor and shame culture. We've talked about this a little bit here before. It was immensely important for your family to pass the family name down to your children and especially your son. This is a patriarchal society. Um, unless if this wouldn't happen, you would experience shame as a family. And it's difficult for us Americans to feel the weight of such shame. But in, in these days, your honor was more important than your wealth, more important than your vocation, more important than anything in the Roman worldview. And this couple was facing a life ended with shame. This is their dark situation. Now, how many of you have ever prayed the same prayer for decade after decade on end? over and over and over again? Have you ever prayed something so many times that you feel utterly exhausted from the prayer, almost completely numb to it, at a loss, even though you pray, still at a loss as far as any real expectation that something would actually, that God would actually hear and answer your prayer? We can only imagine the hundreds of prayers made by this couple over the decades, praying for a child. Sure, you know, sometimes Elizabeth being held by Zechariah, just weeping, just longing for this child, as yet they approach old age with this lingering, unanswered prayer. But however, in our story, at the back end, right, of, of all these decades of, of, of longing and praying, Zechariah suddenly finds himself in a very unusual circumstance. Our narrative continues in verse 8. Now while he, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
So this part in our story, Zechariah's priestly division was on duty in Jerusalem at the temple. This took place rarely, and even more rarely, was the chance that while on this duty to be chosen by lot to actually enter the temple itself to light the altar incense inside of the inner sanctuary of the temple, which literally was the last kind of thing standing between the Holy of Holies and the one lighting the incense. Now, to be chosen for this duty was essentially like winning the lottery. It was a once-in-a-lifetime chance and probably even more scarce than that, right? Unlikely to ever happen in your lifetime. But here is Zechariah, chosen to enter the temple to pray and light the incense. Now, the temple served as a holy place where essentially heaven met earth. God's presence dwelling in this temple. And Zechariah found himself in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the holiest place in all of the land, just feet away from the massive five-inch thick, 60-foot high veil that divided God's presence, the Holy of Holies. And in complete silence, the priestly mass of many thousands awaited outside as Zechariah performed his temple duty. Nobody could see him as he was inside of this temple. And as he strolled in this holy sanctuary, it is here that we see some evidence of what exactly Zechariah prayed for. We don't have the words of his prayer, but we can surmise a lot from the angel's response to him. More than likely, Zechariah is standing there, and he reaches back into the vault of his mind and his heart. And he says, here I am. I'm never going to be here, this close literally to the presence of God ever again. I'm going to pray for that son just one more time. It was kind of a Hail Mary prayer, a scattershot prayer, as his wife was far past child-rearing years. But his hope still lingered within and we can also guess, as you see the angel's response in a minute, minute, minute that he wasn't just praying for, his, for a son to come, but also for the hope of Israel, for its consummation beneath God and his new King David that was to come, that was prophesied to come. Let's see, as we read on to the angel that appears to him in verse 11. And as he was in this temple, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Yeah, of course, right? <laughs> but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, he must be, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just." to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So as he was praying, this angel appears. And we have to feel the magnitude of everything that was just said. It's been 400 years since these words were uttered by the last prophet, the prophet Malachi, 
I'm going to read this to you at the very end of the last little book in the Old Testament. I'm about to sneeze. I've never sneezed in a sermon before. I don't want to do that. I went away. Malachi 4, verse 5, the last words of our Old Testament says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. As he's hearing these words, these words would have been echoing in his own mind. This is a lot to take in for Zechariah. And he was troubled. He was full of fear. But if you pay close attention to the angel's words, it's pretty remarkable. He says, do not be afraid. God has heard your prayer. Your wife will bear a son. You will call him John. But then he says this, and you will have joy and gladness at his birth. It is apparent that throughout this whole pronouncement, that God is about to do something big and dramatic on the scale of like world history here, yet even though he was working on such a massive scale, he is not so busy that he has forgotten just how much this 60 plus year old man who could never have children was mourning over the despair of his childless circumstance. The child was important, but first, the angel says, he actually takes the time and says, you, God has you in mind here, you are going to be full of joy at his birth, full of joy and gladness. For our God is a God of compassion, a God of mercy, caring for even the ordinary folks, just like you and I. And it is here that we must also take note, no prayer even lifted up for decades should ever be deemed as hopeless. As if we should simply quit, say I've prayed enough, I'm just gonna move on here. We always have reason to hope, even in the times where our souls feel cast down. As the psalmist said in Psalm 42, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Now, when we return to our story, this child, as announced by this angel, will be specially devoted to God. He will not drink wine or strong drink. In Numbers chapter 6, this Nazarite vow um, that Samson and Samuel were actually said to have made at their birth as well. The angel said that the Holy Spirit will fill this boy even from his womb, which is said of literally no one else in our scriptures, completely unprecedented. And he will have a prophetic role in the turning of the hearts of Israel back to God in order that he may prepare the way for someone much greater than himself to carve out a path for another child that will supersede him. The last words of Malachi is now coming true and God is now ending this period of prophetic silence and he is about to re-enter the world scene in a big way. Now, it's hard to imagine what Zechariah was thinking at this point because his own son is going to have a key role in this new work of God. I'm sure that his mind is just racing to comprehend this extraordinary news. You know, sometimes if you have like a a really big, you know, news to share to somebody and and you walk into the room and you share it with them, you're aware just how weighty it is. And, And usually the response is like, what did you say? And you find yourself like having to slow down and maybe repeat it to be careful that they're tracking with your words. Gabriel just, the angel here just kind of like drops it on him, right? Without taking much time. You can think of Zechariah's mind is just probably in this swirl, just like, whoa, this is a lot to take in. Let's, let's go back. Let's, 
you know, as he sits here, as he stands there, um, he comes up with a very ordinary question that I think if any one of us in his shoes and his life circumstances would have had. He looks at the angel and he says, how? How shall I know it? I'm an old man. My wife, she's advanced in years. Now, historically speaking, that phrase advanced in years, all the evidence shows that we can think of this couple as past 60. So how could his wife bear a child in such a time of life? But if you read closely, he's really asking for a sign. In the lights of Moses and Gideon and others, he is not the first person to ask for a sign that can kind of serve as a stamp of proof for extraordinary news from God. So, so far, all this is kind of expected. But now if you see the angel's response, we can gather that Zechariah not only prayed for a son, but also prayed for Israel, acting as a priest should, as an intercessor on their behalf. And the angel's response is to both prayers, but the response is only one response, because the son is tied up with the hope and the consummation of Israel, as we will see. The coming child is part of the salvation that is coming to help clear the paths for its arrival. But here, Zechariah, he is found doubting these things. How could a prayer be uttered in one minute, only to be apparently doubted the very next minute, even if an angel was standing before you? Because he's a human being, like you and I, right? I think we could relate to this. His question revealing his doubts brought him a pretty stern response from the angel. And at this point, he would be trembling because the angel responds, revealing that he is no common angel. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Read the book of Daniel and see the might and power of Gabriel. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in due time. Now the people were waiting for Zechariah outside the temple. He was taking far too long at this point. They wondered at his delay in the temple. Did he make a mistake? Did God like, you know, take him out in there? Like what's going on? But when he comes out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, something that people at this point were not accustomed. They were not accustomed to seeing visions, right? But he saw something. He comes out. He's making signs to them. He remained mute, and nobody quite understood what happened because he could not tell them. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now, his prayer for a sign was actually answered. But however, the prophetic silence of God would continue for just a few more months with Zechariah's silence. It was not yet time for this coming good news to go out, as Zechariah had something to learn in this process. And what's amazing to the story is, to me is, you know, you would think that God, as he's orchestrating this, will be like thinking beyond Zechariah, just like, I, I got to get to my work here. And he's like, you know what? No, 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 no. I got to work on Zechariah here for a few minutes. I, I got to maybe slow this down and, and shut up this good news just for another seven or eight months so, so Zechariah's heart can be molded and shaped because I love him. Because I, yeah, I'm working on the world scene here, but I, I care about this ordinary man. Isn't that amazing? 
Verse 24 continues. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So at some point, we assume that Zechariah communicated all these things to Elizabeth, probably by writing it down, and eventually, in miraculous fashion, she conceives. But what does she do? She also is silent about her pregnancy that she's waited all these decades for. She actually hides her pregnancy, wearing baggy hoodies and stuff, right? Apparently taking the lead from Zechariah's silence. For five months, she had kept her mouth silent and hidden, for thus the Lord has done to me to take away my reproach from among the people. And if you read in the, in the chapter of Luke here, the story is interrupted with uh, Mary and Gabriel's visit to Mary, which we will hear about in a coming sermon. But after this interjection of Mary's story, we arrive at the birth of this new miracle son named John. And we will officially see the prophetic silence broken. This is a word of the Lord from Luke 1, 57 through 62. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord has shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So here we are, the baby is born. The whole town has heard this news that the couple's been praying for so many decades, maybe even in the past, praying with them and for them. It's actually happened. And as was tradition, everyone came over for the circumcision of this new and the naming of this new child. Usually what would be tradition as well, especially in this unusual case of a child being born so late in life, um, and this child being really the only son, improbable forever only son of this couple, he would most definitely be named after his father. And this way, the family honor and legacy would continue. And in a way, the fathers of the family would continue their heritage and their legacy through his son. But to everyone's utter shock, Elizabeth, standing before her neighbors, unconventionally responds when asked what his name will be. This is part of like a, a tradition, a traditional question, almost rhetorical, knowing the answer, oh, what will you call him, Elizabeth? I mean, as Zechariah, of course. But she says, no, no, nah, no, his name will be John. And here's where we don't have a lot from Elizabeth, right? But here we see the evidence of her faith. We don't have a record of her journey, right, of wrestling with Zechariah's vision and the words coming from Gabriel concerning the child, but somewhere throughout this pregnancy, she accepted the difficulty of God's will for her coming son. And I want to stop and just really explain what this would have meant if you were Zechariah and Elizabeth hearing all this about John the Baptist, well, John the baptizer, he wasn't a Baptist, uh, but coming. All right, uh, we talked about the family honor, how important it was for the son to be, to continue the legacy of receiving the father's name in this ancient culture and how important that was. It must also be said that knowing their future financial insecurity, that being told that their son would hold the prophetic office and be essentially like the, the, another Elijah, um, that 
would not really guarantee a very stable future for them or their son. If you know anything of the prophets of the Old Testament, these prophets were commonly driven from the people, pushed away to the outskirts of society. They were constantly in danger. And you can call their, um, uh, their office of prophets kind of like an occupational hazard. Many did not live to very old ages for being killed. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted a secure future for their son. That one was not very promising. Elizabeth seems to have accepted all of this, however, with great and tremendous faith. I wish we had more from her. I'm really, her her faith is impressive. And now we come back to Zechariah. We don't have much information on what he was feeling at this moment, but apparently at this moment when the naming of his son was brought to him to confirm or not affirm the words of Elizabeth, there was like a lingering. They kind of looked at him and there was no initial quick response. They kind of looked at him like, is she for real? Like, what, what, is, is this really going to happen, Zechariah? What do you have to say about this? And there was like this like pause. You can like see it in the text. There was a, a kind of staring at him like, what is he going to do? Everyone wondered in amazement, staring at him, waiting for his response. And that tension was felt that just maybe these two were not on the same page. They all looked at Zechariah. He was still mute, waiting for his response. And here, through Zechariah's lingering, we can say this. He was being confronted with Christ even before Christ was born. This is what I mean. In this single moment in his life, two paths lay before him. Right now, this man could reject it all. He could say, no, I am not naming him John. He is not to be a prophet. I'm going to stick to the honor of my family and ensure that I can secure what years I have left as a father would have the right to do by naming the son after me and after my father because this son is my own. Or Zechariah could take heed to Gabriel's words and let his own will crumble and to accept the will of God. Either way, before Christ was even born, Zechariah was being confronted with the coming of Jesus. And Zechariah's ultimate hopes were being challenged in this very moment. I want to pause right now and recognize that Jesus, right now and tomorrow and for the rest of your life, he is in the business of confronting you and I. His first advent was just that, He was confronting essentially the world and he is still doing so today. And when he confronts you, just like Zechariah, your hopes, your fears, and your doubts tend to be surfaced and he challenges them. The dark places in your heart may be exposed because Jesus, he wants all of you. And he may ask you to give up the things that you hold so near, so dear in your own heart. As often we hope in so many other things more than we hope in God himself. And by his spirit, he wants to draw out of faith, draw out of faith that ultimately is the entrusting of your entire life into his sovereign hands. Faith is just that. Faith is a self-denying abandonment of self and the laying up of your entire self before God saying, do as you will. It is you losing the rights over your own life in your own future and the ultimate submission of it all to the will of God. 
He has a plan to work out through you. But the question is, how are you going to respond? How are you responding this morning? Will you kick against him like Paul did? He kept kicking and kept kicking until he found himself being knocked down off of a horse and the terrifying brightness of Jesus confronting him, forever changing him. Will you kick against him like Zechariah and even lose your ability to speak before you accept it? Jesus is in the business of this kind of work and he will never leave you alone until he gets all of you until he gets all of your devotion, all of your submission. This is a wrestling match that I think Zechariah is having in these few crucial moments here as he stares at his new child before him. And here he can catch the suspense, and he can see that a change is happening in Zechariah, potential alteration in his heart. Zechariah, probably now a broken man over the weight of his own doubts, he knows what he must do. And we read his response in verses 63 through 66. And he asks for a writing tablet. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Word, suddenly the silence is surely broken. The word spread like wildfire, right? And all who heard them laid it up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now this is a divine moment. If you were there, you would have been like, extremely aware that you are witnessing God actually do something in front of your eyes. This man who hasn't spoken a word in months is now speaking and rejoicing and blessing in God and blessing God because his heart has been changed. But God is not done. For unexpected to everyone, this ordinary man, Zechariah, suddenly enters the office of prophet. Because when his tongue is loosed, he suddenly starts prophesying, prophesying just like all the prophets of old. Continuing on, verse 67, after this, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his father Abraham to grant us that we would be delivered from the hand of our enemies and might serve him without fear and with holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. There are so many verses just alluded to and quoted from the Old Testament. It's just chocked full of just an examination of all the old prophecies that, were, that he knew was about to be fulfilled. And now at this point, you can imagine actually picking up his new child, John, in his hands as he looks at his new son in the eye and says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit 
in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew, and he became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. As we bring this sermon to a close, what we find in Zechariah's prophecy is a summary of all the hopes and all the longings that a trampled and heavily trodden people have. From the covenant given to Abraham to bless all families of the earth to the promise of a new and better King David who would be sitting on the throne forever and ever. That not only would God reestablish his kingdom, but he would do something even bigger. He would offer the forgiveness of sins. He would light up the dark places of humanity. And he would guide our feet into ways of peace. In this moment, we could say Zechariah's own plans for his life decreased and vanished as he joyfully embraced God's will for his life and for his precious son's life. In summary, it was Zechariah and his own will that decreased and God and his will that increased. And now Zechariah and Elizabeth, after this story, they vanish from the pages of history. Not another word is spoken about them. We have no idea what their years, their remaining years were like. Their precious son does indeed become a strong prophet, the mightiest prophet who ever lived, says Jesus. He does prepare the pathways for Jesus to arrive and even baptizes our Lord. And like his father Zechariah, he one day is also confronted with Jesus. As Jesus' ministry began some 30 years later, he began eclipsing the ministry of John. And John, after preaching and baptizing and gathering all the crowds from the surrounding areas, he saw those crowds suddenly dissipating. He saw his own disciples abandoning him and running after Jesus. This is found in John chapter 3. The story goes like this. And some came to John and said to him, Rabbi, means teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan whom you bore witness to, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, as his ministry declines and starts disappearing and starts dissipating, he says these words, this joy of mine is now complete. He, speaking of Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John was confronted with Jesus, and he uttered those famous words, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, living out our hope in the good news of Jesus Christ and in the person of Jesus Christ can rightly and almost fully be summed up in that statement. And my prayer is in this Advent season, as we walk through this, the hope that is found in all of these stories that culminate in the birth of Christ, that like Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John, that we will be open to Jesus confronting us and that we would allow 
all of our hopes to be aligned to the salvation of Jesus Christ and his pathways and his plans for our life, that we would be, allow ourselves to be disarmed by his spirit, that our strong wills would come tumbling down and we would have the boldness to utter that same prayer, Lord, please, you must increase in my life and I must decrease. For ultimately, that is what this Christmas season is about, the Lord Jesus and his glory increasing in this world, that his salvation can go out and his hope can go out and us in humanity being restored in his image by us decreasing and us living for him. So let's pray that as we close. Call the worship team to come up with a final song. Jesus, uh, I love this story, Lord, because I just feel like Zechariah is just a normal guy who uh, really, there's not that many in Scripture that were this, you know, uh, overtly confronted in, with an angelic visitation um, who responded just like any of us would have responded. And, and you, you loved him enough to hold his tongue in order that his heart may be shaped and molded and may eventually all the walls of his own will would crumble. And he would say, Lord, have your way with my son. We know that the story of John the Baptist was a tumultuous one, that it led ultimately to his own death at a very young age. So, Lord, we don't know what you have before us. We know that it is good what you have, as your word says. But, Lord, right now our nation needs a church that is really living within your will, that is learning doing the hard work of submitting the entirety of ourselves to you, Holy Spirit, I pray that this church, Emmanuel Church, would be open to the work of the Spirit in taking out our idols and uprooting all the false loves and the counterfeit gods that dwell within us. Lord Jesus, please confront us this Christmas season that we may be changed into your likeness. And may we, like Zechariah, rejoice in you when we see our sin being slayed before you, when we see all those idols being ripped up in our hearts. And may we rejoice when we see your work in our own life. And Lord, in the corner of this city, in such distressful times as you work in our hearts, may your work shine like a bright lampstand throughout our neighbors, through our coworkers, throughout this city. That even in 2020, Lord, a time of just such uniqueness, that your glory would shine forth through this city. May you use us for those means. We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your wonderful, good, and holy name. Amen.